Boobrood acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Sovereignty was never ceded. Recording in progress. Before we get started, we'd like to warn listeners that today's episode of Queer Brood might make for some difficult listening for some people. We're talking about surrogacy today, and so some of the content we'll be discussing includes descriptions of medical treatment. If any of this would be triggering for you, please come back next week. Welcome to Queer Brood, a show about queer families produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne. I'm your host, Lauren Bull. On today's episode, we're going to hear from Govind and Adrian, whose daughter Jasmine was born by a surrogate. Hi, I'm Adrian, and I am one of Jasmine's dads and have been for about the last two years. And this is? I'm Govind. Um, I'm a classical Indian dancer and, um, and excited parent at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. So tell us about Jasmine. How, um, how did she come to be here? We weren't actually sure that we wanted kids actually before Jasmine came about. So I think we thought a lot about how life was very, felt very complete. And sometimes I kind of say it was like having a parmigiana that was really, really tasty already. Life that is. And now we just have a parmigiana with extra cheese on top. (laughs) So um, it certainly felt like that going in that we... Uh, we didn't feel like we needed children and that people need children to find purpose in the world or um, uh, or things like that. Uh, we didn't feel very connected with the idea of leaving legacy through children. Um, and so we'd always felt that, you know, life was great and did we, did we really did we need to have children? Um, yeah, I, um, I relate to that. I was really happy with Gavind um, and I as a family. And um, I think we just kind of pondered the idea of, of a child more and more over time until we started thinking, actually, I think we are um, seriously interested in this. Um, and that's the kind of, I guess, the emotional side of it, the emotive side of it, but then there's a practical side as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so over the course of a few years, we, um, we just started learning because I think uh, as a younger queer person, I didn't really I, maybe I had assumed that I wouldn't be a parent mm. and I didn't really learn much about the possibilities mm. um, but yeah for a period of a few years I think we we're learning right and it was through that learning that we then started to think or well, is that something that we want to do mm. clearly we landed on <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah I think I think that's true because I sometimes wonder how much of our reluctance or disinterest perhaps or thinking that we didn't need to be parents was about how we were programmed as well to think that um, in in sort of strongly identifying as a queer person and growing up uh, that way that we kind of then started also just naturally thinking that families weren't part of that identity somehow and I don't know how subconscious that was or not hmm. but uh, sometimes I reflect on that um, but yeah we I think the adventure is what really grabbed us the idea that as Adrian says we didn't know how we would become a family and that's a question a lot of people don't have to ask Mm. um it's not just do you want to have a family but how will you have a family 
And that seemed adventurous to us in some ways, like the, the fact that there's a bit of chance and magic and possibility and community and generosity involved and all of these kind of ingredients that make uh, for an interesting adventure that kind of made us, I don't know, sparked something in us that kind of went, hey, let's um, throw our names in the hat and see what the universe has because mm-hmm. that's fun. So, so that's how we kind of went about um, having a go. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, I love that answer. Mm-hmm. So um, when you threw your hat in the, or your names in the hat, what um, did you go down the surrogacy route or, or how sort of, what was the process for you? Yeah, we, um, uh, so we did a bit of learning first mm-hmm. and um, so community is where it begins, I think, for me. Uh, we reached out to people who were queer parents. Um, we talked to a few of them and we found out how it had happened for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, our first interest was in um, adoption. Um, I think there was some kind of uh, philosophical idea that two parents that, or two want-to-be parents that can't have a kid by themselves and a kid that doesn't have parents to look after them is just, uh, you know, the ultimate mix, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did look into that, and and I think reasonably quickly maybe we we moved away from it. Um, It can certainly happen, um, but it's a really slow process. There are a lot of limitations in Australia um, that are put on uh, same-sex couples, partly, um, but anyone, anyone adopting. Um, and we have the, I think, the, uh, a very cautious kind of adoption uh, program in Australia, which uh, I think seems right, given our awful history with Indigenous people and the stolen generation. Um, and so we kind of quickly came to the view that that just wasn't really going to be our path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think we we felt that it was important to consider the the history and context that we live in here and what adoption means in Australia today and therefore, you know, some of those things too. So it kind of probably hit us at some point. But like Adrian says, very quickly. So we, we kind of hmm. perhaps didn't go down that path too far. Um, yep. And uh, and then, interestingly, I think had this uh, quite a large reframing in our minds because going in we thought our options are limited as a queer family for having children. Um, but then we quickly realised that our options are actually expanded because we're open to possibilities that many families are not. After a lot of research, Govind and Adrian decided to go through the Canadian surrogacy system to have Jasmine. Um, I think there's two major considerations when it comes to cost, and one is how much, of course, but secondly is when and by when, because it's such a long journey that the timing of that is is important in a sense. So... Um, this is where different uh, countries and places have different programs in place. Um, <clears throat> in Canada, because of the nature of it, uh, there in the legislative environment, um, it's really just, uh, you know, as you go, so you don't have to put down a payment mm. to anyone. So over, this... over the period of about three years. So mm. it is, it, it's a lot of money. There's no doubt about mm. that. And I think it's sad because that definitely precludes mm. um, some potential parents um, from, from doing it, which is which is a real shame. And I, I feel very lucky that, that we're able to. Um, but yeah, one thing in Canada is that, that those costs are spread over actually sort of some three or maybe even four years, which makes a huge difference. 
mm -hmm. um, in terms of how much you need to save. And, and I think the reason for that is that it, because it's non-commercial surrogacy, you pay for expenses for, for the surrogates. You make sure they're not out of pocket in terms of, you know, anything that they go through. Um, that's all you can pay. <clears throat> so it's, it's um, controlled uh, and you pay for the medical process, which is the bulk of it. Mm. Um, the IVF. The IVF clinic, clinic which is, you know, mm. so it's expensive. And as much as I agree with Adrian as well, I also think that the technology is purely magical and, you know, I understand the investment and work that scientists must have done, you know, and as an artist, mm. I feel that it's very easy to consume music, but not to think about, you know, to want to pay the $1 and not realise centuries of work that's been done yeah. to create art. So in that sense, there, you know, it's a really valuable, you know, you know, magical process uh, that costs a lot. Um, and there's also legal fees involved. Yes. Mm. Um, which um, is kind of maybe, I don't know, challenging in a way because mm. you think, gosh, legal documents, right? But actually it's, I think, one of the wonderful parts is that, um, sure, you have a contract in front of you that lays things out and you might think that that kind of provides, uh, I don't know, securities or risk mitigations, and it does, it absolutely does, and it provides you very simple things like the framework to literally make us the two fathers and the surrogate not a parent, which is massively important and something that I don't, my understanding is that you can't quite do yet in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, the thing with the legal process is it's also a discussion. And so to make that contract, you have to discuss all of the possible eventualities that you might have mm -hmm. to plan for. And that's, that's a really valuable and important process, um, mm -hmm. you know, who will make a decision about um, terminating um, if and in mm. what circumstances and at what times? Um, you know, IVF takes multiple attempts. How many of those attempts are we mm. committing to, to try? Mm. Um, How supportive is, is are each other's partners, um, you know, through the pregnancy? How much would you like us to be involved um, or how much space would you like? Mm. Um, really important questions that I think are facilitated by that contractual process and the mm. legislative framework. But um, I just wish every couple actually had those conversations, even within their mm. own domestic mm. you know, mm. families without this community mm. child um, situation. It, it's just, we, that's another place where we felt privileged mm. um, where we went, wow, we've actually just had a really, really important um, reason to have a conversation that I, mm. I think a lot of families would benefit from. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same feeling I had after we got married mm. in 2015. Mm -hmm. Phew! <laughs> no, we were all on the edge of us. <laughs> Key point, it was pre-same-sex um, marriage in Australia. Uh, and so we put together our own uh, suite of, of documentation which together had gave the same effect as a marriage certificate. Mm -hmm. um, things like enduring power of attorney, um, uh, et cetera, Wills right? And, Wills. You know, things that made up for yeah. you know, the, the succession that's in. And so through that process of mm -hmm. getting married and uh, writing those documents, we had to discuss things like, um, you know, what we wanted in our wills and um, and and uh, what what we would like the other person to do if we were like um, tragically ill, 
and unable to make our own decisions, etc. And we just thought, gosh, that's not something that um, an off-the-shelf medical certificate—sorry, uh, an off-the-shelf uh, wedding certificate—gives you. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think I don't know anything else about cost that you you sort of think of. Um, can't not really know. Mm. I mean, maybe just the. Um, the interface with a, a foreign medical system, I think, is interesting from a few few kind of angles. One is cost. Um, you know, neither of us are Canadian citizens, and here we are in Canada. Mm. Um, you know, making use of a fantastic medical system. Um, so, so there is some some considerations around that on how how that works and what you know, as Australians, you have to put into the system to to use it, if you like. Um, but another benefit in Canada is that it really, because there is a cultural understanding around surrogacy and the, and the necessity for women to be able to have the right to choose what they do with them, with their bodies and their selves, and for queer families to be able to have families, you know, in, in um, consensual kind of networks like this, uh, the medical system supports it really well as well. So the surrogate is, is really well looked after and we, we felt um, that we, we really sense mm, that mm. Um, uh, and they're sort of at the forefront of that process and the intended parents sit sort of in the background. So, you know, we weren't permitted in the delivery room, which I think is is absolutely fair because that ought to be the surrogate's choice and if the surrogate has a partner, that that's very sensible. It's not necessarily the case in many contexts. So as as if there are queer families listening, I think it, it's... Um, uh, it's interesting to look at some of the experiences that you'll have along that journey and think about where and how you'll feel most comfortable um, because it plays out differently in different contexts and, you, you know, you can be left feeling different ways. So, um, but, yeah, we, we certainly felt grateful that um, there was that um, primacy given to, to healthcare and the surrogates' yeah. well-being in a, in a hospital context. Um, One but, thing mm, that... I did also think was quite cool is the fact that there are organised agencies in Canada means mm. that there's uh, like day-to-day -day emotional and social support and networking for surrogates there. Um, so our surrogate went on a little mini conference to talk to others about mm -hmm. their experiences being surrogates um, and so on. And one thing that I thought was really cute was that she had a T-shirt at one point, <laughs> a, you know, a, uh, a maternal T-shirt that had a picture and said, "My, um, their bun, my oven." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was just really cool. It was, it was very cool. Because gosh, yeah. you must get asked a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you must do. Um, yeah, and I think I think you asked a bit earlier about um, speaking to Jasmine about mm. the journey. Is, mm. is that right? Yeah. yeah, and I think it actually begins in utero in some senses because there is a, um, a challenge for, for families like us in terms of the traditional narrative around the bond between the child and the parent and, and the, you know, the in utero time. And the idea that here we are like several thousands of kilometres away um, and, and we have a child, you know, somewhere else um, and, and there is a surrogate, you know, and who's never met us. So there's this bonding is, is a question mark and how we navigate that mm -hmm. um so if i begin there we um we would send recordings um i enjoy classical singing um so adrian has sound engineering skills so we would record um 
classical Indian melodies that, you know, touch on spiritual material that are, you know, um, that, you know, our ancestors believe are safe and healthy for, for children to hear in utero. Um, and she had belly buds that she'd put on her belly. Um, <clears throat> and Jasmine would, would listen to all of this. Uh, I'd read stories. You read a story, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just, <laughs> it's, it was really, mm -hmm. I think, just, and, and when you have these, these kind of beautiful, I think, coming together of people that really just want everything for each other, um, mm -hmm. it's so easy to facilitate that for one another. So, you know, and, Jan, Janet had a hard pregnancy, a very, um, very difficult one. Um, she was told by a lot of people that she was too old to have children. Um, so we all, you know, felt we took risks. Um, and, you know, it's just a testament to what, what people can want to do for others is to take time out to do, you know, she's got to look after herself and, you know, all of these things. And <laughs> so, I, I think um, there's a lot of trust in, mm, in the process. Yes, I think yes. we sort of mentioned that a little bit. So much trust. And... I think years ago, I thought, how could you possibly ever trust someone mm. to do that? And it was so interesting that through the process, I, I flipped and I thought, gosh, everything that's happened and that is, is happening, mm. I just, I can't imagine how I wouldn't trust her and trust this system. It's, um, I just can't think why anyone would be involved in this if they didn't have good intentions. Mm. I just... It actually really flipped. I don't know what flipped mm. it, but I just changed my mind yeah. completely over that time. Mm. Well, it sounds like everybody mm. came in with a lot of love, really, from all yeah. sides. Mm. Yeah. 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 So we we hope <laughs> we we hope to um, to have a pretty kind of open, mm. um, not discussion, but like you know, communication about how. Uh, Jasmine came to be with her. Uh, she's two years old and we've started talking about little bits and pieces already with her. Um, and we hope that she might be able to meet um, her surrogate one day in the future. Um, yeah, and I think that the finer details of that will be worked out along the way. Mm -hmm. But um, I, think, um, I think a strong sense of identity can come from that openness and all these years of talking so openly about everything mm -hmm. has really mm -hmm. set you up to have that conversation well yeah i think i think you're right yeah because we also have to have that openness mm -hmm. with us to be very comfortable with mm -hmm. that you know what that journey was and the reflection to be able to understand what we're telling jasmine i suppose you're listening to queer brood a show about queer family on today's show, we're discussing surrogacy as one of the many ways that people grow their queer families. Um, but people have asked, especially when we were sharing news that we were having a baby, oh, you know, how are you going to tell her? What are you going to tell her? And I, I've always just felt that I'm, I'm just so excited to, to sit her on my lap and say, listen to this fabulous story about what people can do for each other because, mm. you know, this is real. This is you. Like, you're a testament to the fact that, you know, people don't have things mm, that mm. they would like and other people can can fix that and can, you know, help. And, and it's we can just say, incredible. darling, it takes a village to raise a child, but it took a village to make this child yes. too, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's special nice. to you. You're the product of all of them. Yes. Right? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't. I'm so tight to make this child. 
I mean, I'm not sort of deluded. Mm. I think she'll be teased mm. and she'll be different. Um, so we'll have to keep thinking about how we equip her to handle that. Um, but I don't know, another part of me thinks that uh, kids, especially teenagers, uh, they're going to be teased and bullied mm. for something. Yeah. It's it's just whatever's the easiest factor to, <laughs> to zone in on, right? Yeah. So I might, if it's okay, I might ask some specific process questions. Yeah. Um, how did you pick the donor agent or the, the agency that you ended up going through for the surrogate and your clinic that did the IVF? You don't have to name anything, but mm. how did that process work? How did we pick those two agencies? Um there aren't that many options. Okay. Like I think there are two uh, donor egg donor agencies in uh, in Canada. Oh, Correct wow. me if I'm wrong, but we looked at both, mm -hmm. and so it was more that the profile that we were uh, really interested in came from one particular agency. Um, I, I think yeah, the approach with donor agencies is probably to be open to enlist yourselves broadly because. As you say, um, who's who's available in various agencies is different, and timing is is a thing, and you know all of that. So you might find a donor you like, but it might not work out timing wise. Mm -hmm. So it's good to be broad. This this um, yeah, I um, think it's good to keep your options mm -hmm. open. And with an agency, that that's kind of a commercial arrangement. You know, we're paying them a fee mm -hmm. to help organise things. So this, I don't see any issue with keeping all your options open. Mm -hmm. um, and with the surrogacy agency, we did use Facebook networks. So we found our options and then we posted a fair bit to ask people's experiences and what they thought. Um, so it was kind of an informal Google reviews kind of situation mm. um, for what it's worth. Um, but I think it was really valuable because what that spun off was side conversations, which allowed detailed connections with with other couples that have done something like this before. Um, often I say something like because there's so many variants and variations to the to the journey, um, but but I think that that was our approach. Yeah, and the one that we went with had uh, a that program which I touched on before, which provided a lot of um, like social networking mm -hmm. for surrogates, and so that was a real. We thought that was really quite mm -hmm. quite valuable. You know, mm -hmm. um, was there another one? Oh, and the um, <clears throat> and the clinic. That we actually uh, chose. Mm. Um, I think that was partly driven by the location of the egg donor and the surrogate, because you know Canada's massive, mm. <laughs> um, yes. and it's, it's like isn't it as big as Australia? Mm. <laughs> so probably you know, like if you if you have a egg donor in Perth <laughs> and your mm. clinic is in Hobart. Yeah. That's really logistically quite difficult. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I, there was a bit of that. And if I were to sort of share any learnings, I think there's probably three criteria that are really helpful when choosing a, an IVF clinic for this kind of purpose. One is that there are, there are ratings on success rates, which mm -hmm. because it's a scientific process. So yeah. number of, you know, cases they've tried and number of babies they've had. So there's, a, there's, there's metrics you can use, yeah. um, but... That is highly dependent on the second factor, which is their screening criteria. So some 
uh, clinics will have a broader screening criteria, so they're willing to take more people in that might not, um, you know, have all the medical, you know, perfect perfect sort of situation for to create the metrics that they want. Mm -hmm. So, um, and we were more open to that because we wanted to be open to, you know, surrogates that, you know, wanted to do this and might not have all the, you know, mm -hmm. things that a clinic says you need to have to be able to have a child this way. So, yeah. so there, that is a second criteria, which has highly influences success rates. So a clinic with a lower success rate could have a broader acceptance criteria, um, which could be a good thing. Um, so you've got more options. Um, uh, third thing is cost, uh, because costs do vary, not greatly, but um, a bit, a, a bit. Mm. and like with any, any sort of service there are various consumption models where you you know pay for two kids you know and it'll be cheaper than one and then so if you want to have a sibling later so it's you know it gets mm -hmm. when you get to that process that's when you start going god you know <laughs> uh, so it is so probably a little bit of yeah resilience and maybe some friends if if you're kind of not um you don't feel geared that way to have commercial transactional conversations there's going to be a point during the journey when you're going to have to do that um uh, so so surround yourself with help if, if that's that's um, harder for, for you uh, and know that in advance. And then the, the last, the other point is exactly that location. And um, and that's mainly for the benefit of the surrogates. So their trips are mm. you know, reduced and it's a more comfortable mm. arrangement. So, yeah. Mm. You, um, you mentioned you need help around you and talked about the Facebook groups. Do you remember any of their names, if anybody listening is keen to have a look or should they just sort of look up surrogacy? Well, I can't remember their names specifically, but they're really descriptive. It's like Australian Families Surrog Surrogates Network. Oh, uh, so Sorry. there are exactly, and and there are the, the main ones, there's only one or two, one that's based in Canada for surrogates that parents yep. here can join, oh, um, which is really focused on surrogates. Mm -hmm. um, and there's one here that's focused on independent uh, intending parents. Um, and they're the ones with the biggest membership, so it's easy to find um, who they are. Um, but on the topic of networks and practical um, things, um, something we did that we found is very uncommon is that um, we were uh, we were quite keen to see if we could um, Jasmine could have uh, the benefits of breast milk for the first year of of, of her life, um, despite being in a uh, in a same sex household. Um, and we found that, and it's actually through Canada and, and our, mm. own, our surrogate, who's also a birthing coach and various other things uh, and heavily involved in the maternity kind of space, kind of said to us, oh, guys, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have um, breast milk that they're willing to donate because, you know, they're wanting to make sure their um, supply is up for their own children, but they're producing more than they need. Um, there's a lot of people that need breast milk, like children who um, might have been born premature and queer families. So you should, you know, there's a network, you should get on this. Uh, and we did. It's global. Uh, and so from day one, we had, before we got to Canada, we stocked a freezer full at home. Sorry. It's called Human Milk for Human Babies. Human Milk for Human Babies. <clears throat> and it's regional. So you'll find a network in Australia on Facebook. Yeah, or Victoria, more specifically. Or Victoria, yeah. because it's very local, of course. And we also jumped mm. into the Toronto mm. uh, version of that group as well. Toronto breast milk scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jumped in, just right in. Exactly. And I think, and, and the so what for us, like, you know, what does this mean is that 
before we went, that, that freezer you see there in the corner, that is, uh, we call it the um, the left boob and it's not the right boob because we had to like store milk in, in. And it was jam-packed with donated milk that we collected before she arrived here in Victoria. And we drove to Traralgon and so it's, it's amassed from various donors. And you get little bits, sometimes, you, you know, there's a bit more. So it was stocked up to service when we came back. And then when we went to Toronto, we before going there, we reached out on the network and had um gosh i forgot what it's called now um the, the early, early rescue yeah. colostrum colostrum mm. um mm. when that, mm. when a um when a woman first starts uh, producing milk mm. uh, this is my personal understanding not some sort of scientific explanation but when they first start producing milk, it's kind of like um, super hardcore nutrient rich um, and, and designed to help baby into the world with a, with a nutrient boost. So, um, so we had donors that were like, oh, great. Look, I hear you coming soon. So guess what I'll do? I'll just get some ready in the freezer and then mm. don't even know them. Uh, and so we, Jasmine was fed breast milk exclusively for the first 12 months, um, you know, with the gracious mm. <laughs> help of uh, mm. so, so many, many, women, many women in yeah. around the world. And we went yeah. to Port Douglas yeah. on a holiday and we were like, ah, oh, screw mm. it, because, mm. you know, obviously uh, we can't produce on the go. And, um, yeah, there was a donor there that was happy too, which we didn't need to um, avail ourselves of because mm. we had an esky and figured it out. But, mm. you know, just to, as a backup, because we were like even on the plane, the, the bags could burst open and we might be in Port Douglas and now we don't and, and baby's not used to formula yet. And so, um, so yeah, look, there's just, if, if you're willing to take help, I think um, there's a lot around and and it was for me and I, I really encourage, um, uh, I've had a lot of friends that have uh, become pregnant recently, straight friends and I've, you know, there's, there's so much, so much around breastfeeding, you know, so much um, stuff, you know, going on. And, um, and the struggle is real for so many people around the expectations and the difficulties and the, uh, and I think even straight families should consider the fact that you know, mm. don't have to take mm. it all on yourself. Mm. Um, yeah. And there is, there is just uh, so much to be said about what the community has that's not needed by anyone else. I mean, I remember picking up a, a giant esky of milk and uh, a massive, massive hug from this this mum who'd produced who had had this milk, saying, "I just couldn't throw it in the bin, but my children don't need it." And I was, I had to, I had to express because they were expecting a preemie baby and they didn't. Um, and so, so in hospital, she was expressing just after birth as much as she possibly could and going through all this and they haven't needed it and it was going to go in the bin. Mm. Um, and, and this is, this is this, the virtuous mm. cycle that we all have mm. to engage in. I mean, you know, there's, mm. uh, yeah. So, so, um, and we met some wonderful people and got lots of advice because mm. what happens is you, you meet people that are yeah. recently gone through, Oh, and in Canada, do you remember the, the wonderful um, queer couple that we met who were, yes. Um, who were milk donors for Jasmine? Yeah. Uh, they they rocked up with presents and old clothes because they're like you're here and you don't have family and so and that's the other thing mm. I think um, as <laughs> as queer parents doing surrogacy three thousand kilometers plus away from home 
you, you are removing yourself from your solid support network, you know, and or potential of a support network. And and then to arrive and have a, a milk donor network and a surrogate with their family and all of their other people around and everyone just go, right, let's yeah. do this. It's just yeah. incredible. So it was amazing. we still have toys and books and things from, from people we never knew that, you know, turned up with milk and something more. We <laughs> so. received help from amazing midwives mm. uh, in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, one of whom also was a queer, mm -hmm. uh, a queer family. Um, uh, a queer mother, I mm. guess is the word. Mm. Um, and yeah, we just, I think we just felt, wow, community. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Okay. I guess on that note, I only have one question left. And that is, what does chosen family mean to you both? Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, it's big. <laughs> <laughs> People want it. <laughs> <laughs> what does Jason family mean? Look, I, I would say that based on my experience, chosen family is embracing, uh, not not trying not to sort of uh, wallow too much in what we don't have uh, as as um, same sex parents or queer parents or rainbow families, but really embracing the things that we do have that are, that are privileges. We've talked about a couple of those things um, uh, because it's not about having better or worse options. We've just got our own special, unique set of options in our, in our community, mm -hmm. I think for me. Um, I think that's, that's how chosen family works for me then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think if I think about chosen family, I think um, for me, it's it's less about choosing family, but more about being chosen. Um, and I think I've certainly come out of this feeling that um, chosen family means just really being open to being found by your family that exists in the world, you know, beyond um, your genetic relationships. And so you know, I certainly feel Jasmine's chosen us. I feel, you know, those that have come to help us create a family have chosen us and uh, and our friends too. You know, then that yeah, so it's probably just putting yourself out there to be found by your family. Found family. Um sorry, one final thing. Yeah. You said that was the last question, but you wrote a book or both of you wrote. Mm. Do you just want to spruce it? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. Good so, introduction. Yeah. <laughs> the, the absolute vast majority of the work. <laughs> and I helped to um I don't know, tweak a Make couple sure of the details <laughs> and do some of the editing. So all credit to Gavin. Okay. Well, it's called Without Expecting um, because we weren't expecting to be parents and we weren't expecting. Um, so <laughs> actually, <laughs> maybe that. Like, when, to when, you have to, <laughs> when you have to explain <laughs> the joke, it does, no, I think, detract. <laughs> but... Um, it's called Without Expecting, and uh, it's a really short read. Most of uh, most people read it within like forty-five minutes to an hour. Um, yes. So, so I jokingly call it more of a pamphlet than a book, you know. <laughs> really, <laughs> if I'm super honest. Um, but it it actually takes uh, the reader through our emotional journey. So mm. it's less of a how-to guide, um, but it really starts with you know what made us want to be parents, um, some of the joys and the difficulties. Um, and perhaps just our worldview that it's, it's very influenced by, like I say, 
um, I think the mindset of a, uh, of a migrant cross-cultural um, feminist, um, Australian, uh, queer family. So um, it's, I think, yeah, just a window into our journey from mm. a very specific perspective. Um, so, yeah. You had a bit of a look around as to what books were mm. out there on the topic. And there are some really good books that give you a lot of specific procedural details. Mm. And so you wanted to write something that kind of shared some of the emotional mm. uh, experience. Yeah. I think there is very little written and accessible out there that is moves beyond the step-by-step -step guide and actually goes into the relationships and complexities and beauty in all of this. So I think that's one thing. Um, but also firmly acknowledges the feminist dilemma that, that um, queer male couples can have, I think, because a lot of it is about, well, you know, how can we, you know, how do you get a surrogate and how do you, you know, work with a surrogate? It's all very, um, I don't know, very uh, particular kind of, don't you feel like a mm. way of looking at the experience, which we didn't relate to. So for anyone who feels those things, I think it's, a, mm. um, it's probably a place to go to, to relate. Mm. That's yeah. really not something that's talked about much, like an entitlement to that access yes. to that. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's a yeah. very, yeah. And it's, it's completely steeped in the patriarchy that I think men kind of come into the world with. And I think as queer men, you know, for no fault of, of their own, there's this programmed approach mm. to that as well. And then, you can enter a situation of surrogacy with all of that, you know? Um, so, and, and it's just not contested enough. Uh, so. It's, um, you can cut this out afterwards because it's kind of back a bit, but I was thinking of mentioning that I think being a dad has made me think more about um, uh, issues that women, um, and mother's face in society and how blatant it is. And I think I'd assumed perhaps that we'd maybe uh, progressed a little bit more, um, but it's just fascinating as, as two dads uh, receiving uh, gendered, female gendered marketing and communication so much. Um, mm. And actually just gobsmacked, um, it, it's, it's really common. Um, and um, and I just it's yeah mm. I, that's all I would say it's just it's still a bit shocking how much from my point of view women are told that it's their job to raise children mm -hmm. everything from putting the baby change rooms <clears throat> in the, the women's toilets mm. to uh, writing articles about what's how does a busy mum choose the best um, teat for their baby's bottle. Um, to running uh, support programs at the university where I'm studying for PhD mums, mm. uh, even though other than my gender, I'm mm -hmm. essentially a PhD mum. Yeah, it's unsolicited quite advice smacking, really. on the streets um, mm. because, yeah. of course, men wouldn't know how to raise a child because yeah. it's a woman's job. And therefore, yeah. you know, the amount of unsolicited advice we get. Um, yeah. You know, even just anecdotally talking to friends surpasses what I think yeah. <laughs> you, you other kinds of couples would get. Mm. Um, so I'd know. love to think that the queer community can kind of hold a bit of a mirror up mm. to this problem mm. and um, yeah, uh, work on social change there. Mm. Mm. And it's just a statement about how how pervasive gender inequity is in all you know 
in all places. I mean, mm. it's, mm -hmm. yeah, so. Yeah, um, we have the responsibility not to replicate that. Absolutely, yeah, yep. absolutely, yep. yeah. I want to say some people often ask, because uh, we get interesting questions, um, and one is, uh, so what will you do with Mother's Day? Like, how are you going to deal with, she's going to go to school at some point, and how are you going to deal with Mother's Day? And it's really interesting because there's many ways to, it makes you think, and you go, well, like, I mean, I never thought that was a problem, but now that you raise it, like, how am I okay. going to deal with Great it? Great question. Yeah. yeah. And, I and I've, you know, I've, I've felt that um, I, I, I'd really like to have conversations around uh, entitlement, around that topic, to say that, um, not you, inclusiveness is, is 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 important, but but um, I wouldn't want Jasmine to walk into the world feeling entitled to have representation everywhere because I think it's not true, and therefore I think I'd like to have a conversation with her around it's okay to have a Mother's Day. You don't have a mother, and therefore let's make cards for your friends' mothers because it's their day, and you've got other days. You know, there's I don't Hobbit Day, this you know, you know other other days, right? <laughs> so, and these are your days, and that's wonderful. Maybe they can celebrate your day. She but loves Midsummer Cards. She loves Midsummer Cards. <laughs> she glitters up for it. Um, you know, kicks her shoes off and has a boogie. Uh, and so I just I wonder as well if there's some some joy in, in exclusion is a strong word, but mm. some joy in being able to be the other and celebrate someone else's moment, you know, mm. and not need to be included everywhere. And that's another thing I don't hear discussed as a lot because inclusiveness is very important. And I think there's this, you know, very important um, movement around, um, you know, that, but also to have a holistic conversation, we also have to think about the sense of entitlement that we can walk around with. Um, so anyway, don't know how relevant that is, but that was No, it. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, and different, the point of celebrating difference is mm. to, it's different. It's different. different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't and try her to... friends want to glitter up with her. Mm. Come along. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Imagine a little game of toddlers. <laughs> all yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous. We have got a great photo yes. of Gordon covered in glitter, changing Jasmine's nappy on the bonnet of the mm. car on the way to the I just think that. I just think that's representative. And that's all for Queer Brew today. Thank you so much to our guests, Govind and Adrian, for their openness and their warmth and just an incredible interview. We hope these stories have helped any listeners thinking about donor conception or surrogacy or anyone still in the early stages of just thinking about how they might grow their queer family. If this episode brought up anything you'd like to talk about, you can call Q Life on 1300 727 or visit their website at qlife.org.au where you can connect via web chat with someone between 3pm and midnight. Queer Brood is produced and presented by a group of queer and trans broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne, with financial support from the city of Yarra, here in Nam. The theme music for Queer Brood is produced by Darcy O'Connell. Queer Brood programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au and listened to as podcasts on your favourite podcast app. Mm -hmm.